Hello, my name is Pam Johnson, and the next talk will be on multi-detector CT of the post-operative aorta. Just to provide an overview, I'm going to discuss a, a little bit about protocol design, after which we'll talk about endovascular stent repair, which is being used pretty widely for um, many patients with abdominal and even thoracic aortic aneurysms, and then I will discuss the different types of surgical repair. So basically, the type of repair that's performed depends on the anatomic segment of the aorta. The ascending aorta is still primarily surgically repaired, as, um, including the aortic root. The arch may be um, may be repaired with hybrid procedure of surgery and stent placement. The descending thoracic aorta um, endovascular stents have been very become very popular for both descending thoracic aorta and of course for abdominal aortic repair. With respect to protocol design, um, post-operative imaging is different from pre-operative imaging and it depends on the segment that was repaired and the procedure that was performed. So if a patient has undergone aortic root repair and the, they are concerned about pseudoaneurysm, you should, you should uh, perform the scan with, with gating. You need to do a well-timed arterial scan and you may need a pre-contrast scan. A pre-contrast scan is used after endovascular stent repair it's helpful as the first study following an aortic root repair to distinguish surgical pledgets from pseudoaneurysm. And in the setting of a suspected pseudoaneurysm after an, an ascending aortic or root repair, a venous phase acquisition may be helpful. Um, the pre-contrast scan, as I mentioned, to distinguish felt strips and pledgets after following aortic root repair, but it only needs to be performed after the first the first post-operative scan as a baseline. The arterial phase is evaluated to uh, assess the coronary arteries, to look for a pseudoaneurysm, and, and if um, active bleeding is suspected, a venous phase is helpful because it will show a change in the morphology of active hemorrhage from the arterial to the venous acquisition. Here's a nice example showing how the pre-contrast scan enables us to distinguish surgical material from a pseudoaneurysm. So here's a quiz case for you. I'll give you a minute to look at it. One of these patients has a leaking pseudoaneurysm after aortic root repair. Can you tell the difference? And the teaching point of this case is that surgical material can look just like a pseudoaneurysm on a single arterial phase acquisition. So. There are some hints as to which patient has the real pathology, and that is if you see the arrow pointing to the superior vena cava in the image on the right, there's a large hematoma surrounding the aortic root. A small amount of blood is a normal finding, a small amount of air is a normal postoperative finding, but there's a large amount of blood in this case compressing the superior vena cava, and this is the patient with the leaking pseudoaneurysm. On the venous phase, you can see the change in morphology because this is actually active bleeding from the aorta. The other patient, the finding was accounted for by surgical material. So pre-contrast scan in these patients on the first post-operative imaging is very helpful. With respect to the abdominal aorta, patients are often repaired with endovascular stent repair. And the goal is to exclude the aortic pathology from the lumen. Um, 
These are performed under fluoroscopy. You can see the baseline image on the left and the stents being placed in the two images on the right. And then the, the um, image at the end of the procedure showing that only the lumen is opacified. The aneurysm has been excluded by the stent um, with the CT correlate to show the actual stent material extending from the abdominal aorta into the iliac arteries. After stent placement, we, we routinely perform three acquisitions to distinguish the pre-contrast, to distinguish calcification or surgical material from endoleak, the arterial phase to measure the sac of the aneurysm, to look for an endoleak, and to confirm that there's been no occlusion of arterial branches, and then the venous phase because a small percentage of endoleaks will only be visualized on the venous acquisitions. So here's an example arterial and venous phase imaging in a patient with a large endoleak and uh, in additionally there's actually hemorrhage outside of the aneurysm sac. So one of the things that I want you to take from take home from this talk is that patients with an endovascular stent can still rupture and you need to understand the risk factors and the and um, and what the normal post stent appearance should be and the abnormal findings that put the patient at risk for rupture. The, the literature that um, guides this protocol design is based on two papers that were published in 1998 and 2003 that showed that the pre-contrast scan eliminates indeterminate cases by, by confirming that high density is actually calcification in the aneurysm sac and not an endoleak and the delayed acquisition reveals a small percentage of additional endoleaks that would not be identified on the arterial phase alone. So here's another quiz for you. Two patients with um, descending thoracic aortic repair. And the question is, which hyperdensity is the endoleak? Arterial phase imaging for both. They have high density in the sac in both locations. The top image, there's no high density on the pre-contrast, so that was actually the endoleak, whereas on the bottom image, you can see that there is high density on the pre-contrast scan, so the bottom set of images show calcification, and that is why we perform a pre-contrast scan to make this distinction. Um, we look, you need to look both carefully at both the arterial and the venous acquisitions because the endoleak may be more conspicuous on one phase or the other. Here's an example of an endoleak seen better on the arterial phase, and here's an example of an endoleak seen better on the venous phase. So the goal of the endovascular stent is to uh, exclude the aortic lumen from the aneurysm sac, and there should be no contrast in the aneurysm sac. That is what we're looking for with an endoleak. In this patient with a thoracic endovascular stent repair, another example of an endoleak seen only on the venous acquisition. Okay, moving on to aortic repair, I'd just like to present a little bit of history that the first successful surgical repair was performed with a cadaver graft, and prior to this, the techniques for aortic repair included cellophane wrapping and ligation. And what's very interesting is that Albert Einstein actually had an abdominal aortic aneurysm, and because it was difficult to repair, it was actually um, it was actually wrapped with a piece of yellow cellophane, 
and that was his surgical repair and it actually um, stayed intact for a number of years after that. Fortunately we have moved and advanced from the days of cellophane wrapping and we now have endoluminal stent repair or surgical repair as the two primary means of repairing the aorta. So I will review these beginning with endoluminal stent placement which is the primary method for repairing abdominal aortic aneurysms but is also used in the thoracic aorta and then discuss a number of different surgical procedures. After an endoluminal stent is placed the normal progression should be that the aneurysm sac decreases in size over serial imaging. It may take time but there should be a decrease in size of the aneurysm sac on follow-up CT exams. The lack of regression or an increase in size reflects endotension or an endoleak and is a very important thing to recognize. So stability is not a good thing. You need to also look at the branch arteries for compromise. You need to look for a change in stent positioning or a stent fracture. So here's an example of a successful endovascular stent repair of the abdominal aorta. You can see that the aneurysm sac has substantially decreased on the one year follow-up. That is a exactly what we're looking for. The complications in these patients include vascular occlusion, endoleak, stent dissection, um, aortic dissection, and stent migration. So here's a patient who had an abdominal aortic aneurysm repair with a stent and you can see that the left renal artery is occluded on the first post-procedural post scan. There's no enhancement of the left renal artery. There's diminished enhancement of the left kidney. This is a critical finding and the patient had um, had to be repaired with a left renal artery stent which was placed and um, and perfusion to the left kidney was returned. With respect to endoleaks, um, the most common are the type 2 endoleak which is retrograde perfusion by an arterial branch most commonly the inferior mesenteric artery in which case the endoleak is anterior or a lumbar artery in which case the endoleak is posterior but just to review the overall classification system type 1 endoleaks occur at the proximal or distal end of the stent type 2 as I mentioned type 3 is when there's either a defect where the two where two stents overlap or a defect in the stent itself type 4 is not something that we see on um, post post-operative imaging because it is something that occurs transiently when the stent is placed. But type 5 is something that you need to be aware of. This is endotension where you don't see an endoleak at CT but the aneurysm sac either is not decreasing or is actually increasing. And some, some advocate performing arteriography in patients whose sac is not decreasing to identify an occult endoleak that is not seen with CT. The management varies depending on the classification. Type 1 and type 3 require immediate intervention. Type 2 may resolve spontaneously, so these are followed. Um, and at follow-up, we want to make sure that the aneurysm sac is decreasing and the endoleak is decreasing. Many will resolve spontaneously. The type 5 endoleak may, or, which is the endotension without a visible endoleak on CT, may mandate arteriography as I mentioned and you need to closely look at the aneurysm sac on these patients. So here's an example of a type 1 endoleak at the end of a descending thoracic aortic um, endovascular stent. 
at the distal end that was treated with additional stent placement um, and the endo leak has resolved. There was a paper that was published in Radiology where they tried to, where they compared the configuration of an endo leak um, to see if there were features that would be helpful to distinguish a type 2 from a type 1 and a type 3. So the first thing that you do when you see a small endo leak is to look for a feeding vessel which enables you to make the definitive diagnosis of a type 2 endo leak, but the feeding vessel is not always seen. So what other features can help us? Well, a tubular configuration is more characteristic of a type 2, and a peripheral or peripheral and central location can be seen in type 2. The type 1 and 3 endo leaks are often larger. They're generally centrally located, and of course type 1 is either proximal or distal. So I'll show you some examples of type 2 endo leaks. Here's one that's anterior, and if once you see it, you need to look for the feeding artery. In this case, you know, you know that you are suspecting the inferior mesenteric artery, so look closely and use your this is where th thin section MPRs that you, that you make at the workstation tailored to the anatomy are really helpful to show the IMA as the feeding vessel. Similarly, here's a patient with a posterior endo leak, and the cause is a lumbar artery branch. That's the feeding vessel, and you really need to look at these with very thin sections, those 0.75 five millimeter reconstructions are, are essential to identify the feeding arteries in these cases because they're, they're typically very small. Type 2 endo leaks, the majority of them actually resolve, especially the small ones as shown in this study, but a persistent endo leak that lasts more than six months is associated with enlargement of the aneurysm sac, a need for reintervention, and a risk of rupture. So I want to show you this case. This is a very important teaching case of a complicated patient who underwent endovascular stent repair. You can see that on the follow-up scan one year later, the aneurysm sac has slightly enlarged, and there was an endoleak identified. The patient underwent surgical coiling. And so we have another follow-up scan one year following the embolization. The aneurysm sac has not decreased but we cannot find an endo leak. Two years later, the aneurysm sac is still increasing, and this is the case that I'm telling, that I was mentioning earlier about an example of an aneurysm sac at risk for rupture, because that's what happened here. So a patient who's undergone endovascular stent repair still has the risk of aortic rupture. So you need to make sure that the aneurysm sac is decreasing in size, even if you don't see an endo leak. As shown by this case, the patient had to undergo surgical repair, was successfully repaired, as you can see in the uh, volume-rendered image on the right of the post-operative appearance. Another complication is a fractured endoluminal stent. It's not something that it happens very commonly, but in this is one example. The patient's original stent fractured, so they placed a second stent, and the patient presented to the emergency department two years later with melina. You can see that there's an endo leak posteriorly. Um, the patient also had um, an aortoduodenal fistula. So the aneurysm sac can rupture into the retroperitoneum and it can also rupture into the duodenum. We've seen two cases of this 
um, if you see a loss of the fat plane between the aneurysm sac and the duodenum in any patient with GI bleeding, you need to suspect an aortoenteric fistula. They often have a herald bleed and it may stop bleeding and you may not see contrast going from the, the aneurysm sac into the duodenum, but that does not mean that they do not have a fistula. So the second bleed may be catastrophic. It is something you need to have a high level of suspicion for in anyone with GI bleeding who's had a stent, particularly a complicated stent um, repair like this one. Moving on to thoracic aortic stent repair. Um, this was originally done in 1994, and favorable outcomes have resulted in use of thoracic aortic stents in the descending aorta for a number of different indications, even beyond aortic repair. There, um, a, a number of studies with large patients showed um, that, that there is decreased morbidity and mortality by using these stents. So where are they used in the thoracic aorta? Well, ascending thoracic aortic stents are placed only in select patients who are non-surgical candidates in experienced centers. The aortic arch, because of the complicated curvature, may require use of fenestrated or branch grafts, but gra um, stents are placed in the arch, but they're most commonly used in the descending thoracic aorta. And they've been placed in the setting of aneurysm, penetrating ulcer, dissection, intramural hematoma, and aortic rupture with reports of successful repair using endovascular stents. What we need to look at preoperatively is the relationship of the pathology to the branch arteries from the aortic arch because occlusion of the left subclavian artery by the stent will result in left upper extremity ischemia as well as stroke and paraplegia. Remember that the left subclavian gives rise to the left vertebral artery and also these branches perfuse the anterior spinal artery so the patient can develop paraplegia. So patients whose left subclavian artery is too close to the aortic pathology may undergo preoperative bypass surgery. Here's an example of a patient with a, a descending thoracic aortic aneurysm that extends right to the left subclavian artery. So we cannot have, ideally, the vascular surgeon needs at least one centimeter of a landing zone, which is one centimeter of normal aorta between the pathology and the branch artery. We do not have a landing zone in this case, so the stent is going to have to cover the left subclavian artery as it did, as you can see in this case, but the patient underwent preoperative bypass surgery. So you need to be aware that the patient may have had preoperative bypass surgery. You need to be looking at the bypass grafts and you need to understand this appearance. If you see it, this patient has had a left carotid to left subclavian bypass graft preoperatively to maintain perfusion of that left subclavian artery. Here's another patient with an, um, an extensive aortic arch and descending thoracic aortic aneurysm who had a stent placed. The stent um, was purposely placed over the left subclavian artery, but the patient had had a bypass procedure done, as you can see. There was a, a, um, a bypass graft from the um, left common carotid to the left subclavian artery. The descending thoracic aorta, what we need to evaluate is the proximity of the pathology to the celiac artery. They may, the patient may require coverage of the celiac artery by the stent. 
But um, what's really critical is to determine whether the superior mesenteric artery has any narrowing because once the celiac artery is covered, perfusion of the hepatic artery and the celiac branches is through the gastroduodenal artery by branches of the superior mesenteric artery. So if a patient requires celiac artery coverage and there's a superior mesenteric artery stenosis, they may need to place a superior mesenteric artery stent prior to placing the endovascular aortic graft. What is our role? As I've mentioned, our role of the radiologist are those pre-procedural analyses, including the location and extent of the pathology, whether branch vessels are going to be uh, covered by the stent, and the risk of spinal cord ischemia. So for the thoracic, descending thoracic aorta, the length of coverage correlates with the patient's risk of spinal cord ischemia. And these patients um, may undergo CSF drain placement prior to surgery if there's a high risk, if there's a long anatomic segment of thoracic aorta involved. We also look for risk factors for deployment failure and endoleak, and those include angulation, tortuosity, calcification, and, and the caliber of the iliac and femoral arteries. We provide information to guide stent selection, in particular the size of the lumen of the aorta where the stent will be placed, and then the post-stent imaging. So, Difficult anatomy for endovascular stent placement includes angula angulation, tortuosity, and calcification of the iliac arteries, and it's an important thing to be looking for on the preoperative scans and include in your report. After endovascular stent placement, we look for the positioning. We confirm that the pathology has been excluded, and we look for the complications that I've mentioned before. These also include, in addition to endoleak and branch occlusion, stent collapse and stent migration. Not common, but stent collapse can occur, particularly when stents have been placed in patients who are being, um, who have had acute aortic rupture and undergo endovascular stent placement. Endoleaks occur in um, as many as 30% in the thoracic aorta. Risk factors include the morphology, the length of the proximal landing zone, the age, and the type of stent. The classification for thoracic endoleaks, a type 1, again, is either proximal or distal end of the stent. Type 2, similar to abdominal aorta, is reperfusion. However, the, the arteries that supply these include the left subclavian, intercostal, intercostal or bronchial branches, and these may be seen on the arterial or the venous phase, similar to abdominal type 2 endoleaks. Type 3 are defects in the graft material at the junction of overlapping stents, and thoracic aortic pathology is often repaired with multiple stents, so they may have overlapping sections, and you may see um, endoleaks at these locations. A couple examples, here's a type 1 endoleak in a patient who underwent endovascular stent repair for a descending thoracic aortic dissection. The two images on the top were the baseline. You can see a, a, a leak, but you, you do not have complete perfusion of the false lumen. Four days later, the leak has substantially enlarged and the entire false lumen has reperfused. Thoracic endovascular stent repairs are complicated. The curvature and the pathology put these patients at risk for these complications. You may see these. It is not uncommon. Here's um, that same patient actually had to undergo surgical repair, as you can see in the postoperative image on the right. 
a type two, a type three endo leak. Um, in this patient, these are typically large. They may be at the junction of overlapping stents, and these require repair immediately. Other complications, migration of a stent occurs very rarely but can occur, um, and it is important, particularly if the stent is located near the, the great vessels. Endograft infection is rare but typically requires surgical in intervention and has a high risk of mortality. The stents can collapse, as I mentioned, most commonly when aortic rupture has been repaired with an endovascular stent. One of the um, most severe complications, life-threatening, is that when an endovascular stent is placed in the, in the aortic arch, patients are at risk for developing a retrograde dissection into the ascending aorta. And the last complication to be aware of is that the, the aorta distal to the stent tends to dilate over time and can develop an aneurysm when a patient has been repaired for a dissection. So I'll show you a couple examples of the complications. Here's a stent that migrated. This patient had a penetrating ulcer that developed a pseudoaneurysm. This is an ideal candidate for a stent placement. The stent was placed. You can see that the penetrating ulcer um, pseudoaneurysm were successfully occluded, and the stent had covered the left subclavian artery, but this was um, known and planned for, and the patient was perfectly fine postoperatively, but that night um, developed symptoms of uh, TIA and, and neurologic symptoms, and what had happened was that stent had migrated proximally and was now covering the left common carotid artery. So you can see the patient's bypass graft. The patient had had a left common carotid to left subclavian artery bypass graft preoperatively. The left common carotid artery was initially um, uncovered. The stent migrated, covered the left common carotid artery, producing the patient's neurologic symptoms, and so a left common carotid artery stent was placed emergently. So it is something that can happen. This is a patient that had an aortic rupture and developed infection, as you can see, with a large peripherally enhancing fluid collection containing gas bubbles, um, a rare complication but a severe complication. Um, another patient with an infected stent graft, this, the, the graft um, developed a new type 1 endoleak, which is a very unusual complication at a late stage. There are also gas bubbles surrounding the stent. This was infected. The infection led to the endoleak. This is a very severe but fortunately rare complication. The retrograde type A dissection that I mentioned, the risk factors for these, these are patients who have a stent placed in the aortic arch. The risk factors relate to the type of graft, the configuration of the aorta. There's a higher risk if there's a steeply angulated aortic arch or a compliance mismatch between the stent and the aorta. So I'll show you an example. Here's a patient who had a descending thoracic aorta repair with endovascular stents, was, um, had a perfectly successful repair, no complications. The patient was lost to follow-up and stopped taking their medications and came back with chest pain. So look at the ascending aorta and look at the ascending aorta now. This patient developed a retrograde dissection and a large pseudoaneurysm. This is one of the complications of an arch stent. 
Moving on to operative aortic repair, this is primarily reserved for patients uh, routinely for patients with aortic root and ascending aortic repa uh, pathology. It may be performed um, for patients in who have abdominal aortic pathology for uh, for various indications, although endovascular stents are, are favored at present. But operative repair is necessary for a patient who has extensive thoracic aortic pathology it, if it involves the ascending and descending thoracic aorta um, and or the abdominal aorta. These patients have to undergo staged surgery in multiple sessions, and I will uh, describe that in detail. So starting with aortic root repair, if you're evaluating a patient who's undergone aortic root repair, you must know what the surgical procedure was. Was the valve replaced? Were the coronary arteries reimplanted or bypassed? There are two types of repairs, a full root interposition where the aorta is basically excised and an end-to-end -end anastomosis is performed from the aorta to the graft. The other technique is called an inclusion root technique where the graft is placed and then the native aortic root is wrapped around the graft. Clearly, these will have very different post-operative appearances, so you need to correlate with the surgical note when you're evaluating the scan. The normal post-operative scan has a small amount of fluid and a few gas bubbles, gradually decreases after time. Complications after aortic root repair, pseudoaneurysm, aortic leak, dissection, and patients can develop coronary osteoaneurysms, particularly Marfan's patients are at risk for these. The, the complications beyond the aorta include mediastinitis and sternal dehiscence. So pseudoaneurysms most commonly occur in the ascending aorta in the region uh, where of surgically manipulated locations. The most common cause of a thoracic aortic pseudoaneurysm is a patient who has undergone cardiac surgery. And the risks include SVC syndrome and rupture. Here's a patient on the non-contrast scan. You can see there's a large hematoma adjacent to the aortic root repair. And when contrast is administered, we see a very large pseudoaneurysm contrast outside the lumen of the repaired aorta. Another patient with a very large pseudoaneurysm, the aorta I've, I've marked as um, with the letters A. Everything else is pseudoaneurysm in this case. And this is not. Um, exceedingly rare. We see a couple cases a year. We've even, see we've even seen patients come into the outpatient center who've had an aortic root repair, who have no symptoms and have a large unsuspected pseudoaneurysm. So look very closely. One of the challenges of these cases is that some of the smaller pseudoaneurysms will look like an aortic chamber if you only look with axial images. So you have to look closely at these cases with your axial and coronal and sagittal MPRs and make sure that there is no saccular outpouching uh, adjacent to the ascending aorta. This is a patient with a very rare complication who had an, an ascending aortic repair and developed um, an aortoesophageal fistula. You can see that there's a lot of gas in the sac uh, surrounding the aorta. Um, this much air is more than would even be typically seen in infection. This should raise your concern for communication with the lumen of the esophagus, and this is a, a has an extremely high mortality. As I mentioned, coronary osteoaneurysms are can occur most commonly in Marfan patients, so look closely and make sure that the coronary ostea are not enlarging over time postoperatively in these patients.
Patients who develop mediastinitis will demonstrate an increase in fluid. The fluid should be decreasing. Any kind of increase in fluid as seen in this case is concerning for infection as was confirmed in this patient. A rare complication as shown in this patient, sternal dehiscence. Patient has a very large chest wall hematoma with swelling. The sternum has dehisced and you can see that there is some blood extending and edema extending into the chest wall. Okay, moving on to the patient with extensive thoracic aortic pathology. That is pathology that involves ascending and descending thoracic aorta. So these patients can, are not ideally repaired in one setting. So the, the procedure is that the ascending aorta is repaired first unless the descending aorta has a higher risk of rupture. But the, the routine procedure in these patients is to place a graft in the ascending aorta and to place an elephant trunk prosthesis going from the arch into the proximal descending thoracic aorta. If you've never seen an elephant trunk prosthesis, you can make the mistake of misinterpreting it as a dissection. So I'm going to show you what they look like if you have to, uh, if you are imaging a patient who has undergone this surgical procedure. S at some time later, weeks to months after the initial repair, the patient returns for repair of the descending and or abdominal aorta. So I'll show you some nice illustrations that were done by our illustrator to show the appearance, um, the surgical procedure, and help you understand what you're looking at when you're evaluating these patients. So the procedure is to first remove the aortic arch in these patients, as you can see, including the great vessels, and open the aortic root and the descending thoracic aorta. The surgeon then takes a standard graft. This isn't, there's nothing special about this graft. It's just a standard graft but it is invaginated on itself and the folded portion of the graft is sewn into the descending thoracic aorta as shown in that third image. Then the, the proximal portion of the graft is pulled back to become the arch graft. So the suture line is in the middle of the graft, the proximal half becomes the arch and the great vessels are replaced. And the distal half is just a free-floating tube in the descending thoracic aorta. So now that you understand what it is that you're looking at, I'll show you some CT images. Their arrows are pointing to the elephant trunk, the free-floating tube in the descending aorta. On axial images, it looks like a dissection. It's not a dissection. You need to understand the normal appearance. The 3D renderings are really helpful to show the appearance. So you can see the suture line in the mid aortic arch on the image on the right. The red arrows are pointing to the elephant trunk prosthesis, which is that free-floating um, graft within the lumen of the descending aorta. And you can see that the ascending aorta has been completely repaired with surgical graft. Another example of the elephant trunk in, in the descending aorta, this is a normal appearance. Part of the lumen it is still going to be perfused because the end of the graft is wide open and contrast will just perfuse. Um, it may be proximal and distal to the end of the graft. And another um, orientation on the same patient. What you can see in this patient is that at the end of the elephant trunk prosthesis, there are small metal um, markers that 
have been purposely placed in these graphs because some patients may undergo endovascular repair as the second part of the procedure. The placement of these the the um, placement of these markers enables the vascular surgeon to identify the end of the end of elephant trunk graft when they are in the fluoroscopy suite placing the endovascular stents because the stent will be placed um, in connection to the, the end of this graft. So just to show you preoperatively images on the left, you can see a, an aneurysm involving the ascending and descending thoracic aorta. Postoperatively, the ascending thoracic aorta has been repaired, and there's the elephant trunk extending from the arch into the descending thoracic aorta. The purpose of the elephant trunk is to protect the descending thoracic aorta in the interval between the first and second surgeries. It is eventually used as part of the descending aortic graft at the second surgery. And one of the um, primary purposes of doing the surgery in this, in this fashion is that when the surgeon goes back to repair the descending aorta, the surgery is performed in a different anatomic location in unaltered tissue planes. If surgery is performed in the same anatomic location, there's a much higher risk of hemorrhage. So here's some illustrations showing you the second part of the procedure. The descending thoracic aorta is opened and exposes the elephant trunk prosthesis. The surgeon takes the prosthesis and connects it to um, additional descending thoracic aortic graft to repair depending on the length of the pathology in the descending and abdominal aorta. As I mentioned, these high-density markers are used if the second part of the procedure is done endovascularly, as in this case. You can see that stents are being placed in the descending thoracic aorta, and the markers help the, the vascular surgeon localize that elephant trunk prosthesis. So just two, two examples. The one on the left had surgical repair of both ascending and descending patholo aortic pathology. The patient on the right had surgical repair of the ascending aorta, an elephant trunk in the arch and proximal descending thoracic aorta, and then endovascular stent repair of the remainder of the descending thoracic aorta and the abdominal aorta. The last thing I'd like to talk about is surgical aortic grafts. While they are not performed with as much frequency as they were in the past, you may see a surgical graft um, in, in the one large series that I could find comparing patient outcomes who, um, between those who have undergone endoluminal stents and those who have undergone surgical grafts, they followed patients for 10 years and found that the aorta ruptured only in those who had had endovascular treatment. So a surgical aortic graft has a very low risk of rupture. What, what the patient is at risk for is anastomotic pseudoaneurysm formation or a contained rupture. This occurs in a small percentage. What's important to recognize is the normal appearance of a surgical graft. They dilate over time. The degree of dilatation depends on the graft material. Um, and, um, at, but at six years, the rate of dilatation is between 20 and 30 percent. So if you see a graft that has circumferentially dilated 20 to 30 percent in the, in the first five to ten years after it's been placed, that's a normal finding. Um, this does not indicate that the graft is failing. However, over time, 20 and 30 years later, 
these graphs lose their strength, the polyester degrades. In fact, um, at 10-year follow-up, 30% of the strength is lost, and at 100%, um, at 25 to 39 years, 100% loss. So at this point, the graft is at risk for breakdown. We are imaging patients um, who live longer. You may see a patient who had an aortic graft, a surgical graft placed 25 years ago. And what you need to look for are signs of instability. There's not a lot of literature on this, but I will show you one case of, an, of a surgical graft that looked a lot like the draped aorta sign that I described in my preoperative aortic lecture. So you see this graft, it's not just circumferentially dilated. You can see that the graft is now inseparable from the left psoas muscle. That's a finding of aortic instability in a native aorta. Um, this was a, a very long-standing 27-year-old aortobifemoral bypass graft. This, if you look at the patient's spine, you can see that this patient also had severe lumbar spine disease. So it's a complicated clinical picture. The patient has back pain, but the patient has a, a very severely um, diseased spine and had undergone, in fact, some spinal fusion and was sent for post-operative imaging with suspected spine cause for the patient's pain, but the technologist astutely noted that this graft had now ruptured. So contained rupture of a graft that was nearly 30 years old, a very rare but potential complication of a long-standing surgical graft. Um, as you can see, the patient underwent successful repair. So in conclusion, um, Remember the importance of gating. Um, if, if there's a concern for pseudoaneurysm of the aortic root, the indications for pre-contrast and venous phase imaging in select clinical settings, please remember to evaluate all aortic roots that have been repaired with your multiplanar tools to look for uh, pseudoaneurysms. They can be subtle and understand that in evaluating these patients, you need to know what the surgical technique was and the expected normal postoperative findings to distinguish pathology and complications. Thank you very much for your time.